Hello. Hi. 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 <laughs> uh, welcome back to the Weirdest Thing podcast. I am one of your hosts, Scotty Milder. Mm-hmm. I'm your other host, Amelia Puerto. And it's spooky season, mm-hmm. but we're not doing spooky stories this no. week. We're just doing shit that's sad AF. Yeah, um, sad and grim. <laughs> yeah. So don't yeah. get your hopes up. Yeah. Don't get, but I mean, I don't know, maybe if you are, um, what is it? I myself am, what is she, what does Lydia say in Beetlejuice? I myself am strange and unusual. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think this episode will appeal to some of our more grim minded uh, listeners, but I would, I don't know about your story. I would, I'm, I will get into it when we get into mine, but yeah, um, yes. proceed a little bit with caution. Yeah. I would say, you know, like if you're like, mm, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that when I'm, I shouldn't say that because my mine's fine and mine ends on like a somewhat of a positive note. My, I think mine's mm-hmm. just a little bit more stressful yeah. than anything yeah. else. Mine's, mine's just like real. It's just grim. So, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get there. I think you're going first. I am going to go first. Um, hold on. Of course, Scotty just helped me film an, uh, an audition, everyone, uh, <laughs> listeners everywhere. So now I'm like having to close up all of the windows and rearrange everything. See? I asked you if you were ready before I hit record and you assured me that you were. I know, but I, I never remember to do this part, which is to like pull up my Google doc uh, and actually like get ready. And then of course I have 18,000 windows open. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Awesome. So I'm going to start you off with a cold open. Okay. Fantastic. All right. At 7.19 a.m. on September 19th, 1985, an 8.0 earthquake hit Mexico City as newscaster Lourdes Guerrero was doing the morning news show. Mm. She said into the camera, it is still shaking a little, but we must remain calm. We'll wait a second before we continue. With those words, the signal went out and Mm. Mexico City was plunged into silence as communication with the outside world was lost. Seven days later... A miracle happened. Mm-hmm. This is the story of the 1985 Mexico City earthquake and the miracle of the Hospital Juarez. Okay. Sources for this are, of course, always Wikipedia, who is hounding me for donations. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So now is the time to give if you're interested in keeping Wikipedia around. So Wikipedia, history.com, Britannica.com, The Guardian, a YouTube video from Pan American Health Organization, and theworld.org. All right, so let's jump in and get started. Sure. Um, okay, so Mexico City, I'm going to talk about Mexico City a little bit. Okay. Um, it was designated an alpha city by the Globalization and World Cities Research Network, also known as the GAWC. Uh, Cities are categorized into alpha, beta, and gamma tiers based on their international connectedness. Mm. I'd never heard this before. I thought this was... London and New York are the only two, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, the only two alpha plus plus cities. Mm. 
Beijing, Paris, Tokyo, Dubai, and others are Alpha Plus. Mexico City, along with Amsterdam, Los Angeles, Chicago, Madrid, Mumbai, Milan, and more are Alpha Cities. Okay. Mexico City's population exploded during the second half of the 20th century. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It, in 1950, the population was 3.1 million. And by oh, 1980, shit. that population had ballooned to 14 million. It mm-hmm. was on track to like, I don't know what a better word, like what a, a, a more emphatic word than balloon explode, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, yeah. It was expected to explode up to, I think it said 20 million. No, mm-hmm. I think it was 30 million yeah. by 2000. But after the 1980s, the population started to take a dip and it kind of evened out. Okay. But it's is it still like the largest or has it like been overtaken by New York? I know like New York, Tokyo, Mexico City are always like kind of vying for the Yeah, top they're all like pretty good. There's just a bunch of fucking people crammed in there yeah. into all of those spaces. Um I'll fact check myself later and tell you the population of Mexico City today, but later. Okay. Um, So in the decades leading up to 1985, Mexico City saw this massive influx. The reason the population ballooned like that was because uh, Mexico City was getting an influx of domestic migrants. So people were moving from Mm. other areas of Mexico into Mexico City. And they did that because there was was a whole bunch of stuff happening around that time. There There was a policy of import substitution industrialization which encouraged domestic manufacturing. And a lot of that was taking place in Mexico City and Mm, and the area surrounding it. Okay, so with a population of that size, clearly you're going to have like too many people for housing units, which is, you know, something a lot of places are seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was an abundance of overcrowded tenements in shanty towns um, all throughout the, the area. And additionally, there was a ban on new housing developments within the federal district. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've got Mexico City and then you've got the federal district, also known as the Distrito Federal or colloquially known as the FDF. And it was basically Mexico City, but Mexico City's metropolitan area extends beyond or extended beyond the district boundaries. Um, The district is also the seat of the federal government. And uh, the area ceased to be known as the federal district on January 29th. 2016. Mm, okay. Before we get to the earthquake, I need to talk very briefly about the geology of the area because mm. it plays a huge part in all of this because Wikipedia could explain it better than I could. <laughs> I've lifted this quote directly from Wikipedia and it's a bit of a long one. So strap in. Wikipedia said, while not on or near any fault lines like San Francisco or Los Angeles, Mexico City is vulnerable to earthquakes. The main reason for this is the surface geology of the area. The city was originally built on an island in the mm-hmm. middle of Lake Texcoco, and Aztec rulers built dikes to prevent flooding, while Spanish colonial rulers later drained the lakes in a massive hydraulic project in response to major periodic flooding. Mm-hmm. The near-surface geology of this area is classified into three sections the old lake bed which is soft clay from volcanic ash with a high water content Mm. piedmont area much of which is capped by 50 to 30 meters of lava which is less than 2500 years old Mm. and an old river delta area 
Mm, okay. So it's like so, smush on top of smush on top of smush. So just like real unstable ground, it sounds like. Yes. Um, I think, I, I don't know if it's an area of Mexico City or if it was Mexico City as a whole, but um, I've, I feel like I've heard it referred to as the sinking city because it's it's built on this old lake bed. So it's mm-hmm. just like blub, 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 right. blub. on the bed. That's not the end of the quote. On the bed of the historic mm-hmm. lake, the prevailing silt and volcanic clay sediments amplify seismic shaking damage to structures is worsened by soil liquefaction liquefaction Mm -hmm. which causes the loss of foundation support and contributes to dramatic settlement of large buildings Mm -hmm. so again smush on top of smush on top of smush right well i know that like in in the big uh earthquakes like they've had in chile and and, uh the big alaskan earthquake it's the liquefaction is like one of the most dangerous because basically the ground turns into liquid yeah, which is moving. terrifying. <laughs> like I started the, the interesting thing about this this story is that I could have done a seven episode series just on this earthquake, mm-hmm. going into like how Mexico City was founded and all of this geology stuff, and then a whole bunch of stuff once we actually get into it. But like I could have done it could have been a multi-episode arc. So yeah. you know, forgive me if I'm giving, you know, a pretty a pretty surface level description of 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 all of this but the story would have been like five hours long (laughs) and we're trying i'm trying i'm trying uh to be brief (laughs) yeah so the yeah the the liquefaction is like you said is terrifying because it is it's basically that like you have this like compressed dirt and then it just like blah 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 blah, Mm -hmm. which is of course the scientific term right exactly Um, (laughs) just imagine your backyard turning into quicksand all of a sudden i mean terrifying terrifying so the earthquake actually happened in the pacific ocean about 220 miles away from mexico city Mm, shock waves from the quake hit the mouth of the uh, rio balsas on the coast at 7 17 a.m and hit mexico city two minutes later Mm. because of the organization of the plates and the trenches in the area this event actually had two epicenters Mm. And the event was a long one. Um, The length of your average earthquake is about 10 to 30 seconds. Mm. Mexico City shook for three minutes. Wow. So this is like like what you hear about like the earthquake and the the Indian Ocean and stuff. Yes. The big, what, what do they call it? The rift kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that like there, you know, I was saying like the organization of the plates and the trenches, that's it. That's off the coast. Mm -hmm. But then it just is like like, travels. The quake registered as an 8.0 on the Richter scale and had a Mercalli intensity of nine violent (laughs) in parentheses violent uh that that mercalli scale is a scale invented by giuseppe mercalli to measure the intensity of shaking produced by earthquakes Mm. the rating of nine violent means damage is considerable in specially designed structures well-designed frame structures are thrown out of plumb damage Mm. is great in substantial buildings with partial collapse buildings are shifted off foundations liquefaction occurs under underground pipes are broken wow that's also super interesting you could do an entire episode about this dang scale um (laughs) like once and that's nine is i think it goes to 13 Mm -hmm. and i was like what I was looking for like what earthquake has been that level, and I couldn't find any that. I don't think I've I've read a little bit about that because I'm I'm all I'm 
fascinated by the possibility of a big ass earthquake off the coast of like portland and seattle and stuff mm-hmm. and they've talked about that mercalli scale and uh, yeah i don't think they've had one that's gone all the way to 13 no but it's basically just like everything's leveled right i mean it's like it's like the idea of a rector 10 earthquake is you know that's the top of the scale but we've never gotten there right right yeah Um, So the earthquake was actually foreshadowed by a tremor that was magnitude 5.2 on May 28th in 1985, Mm. and it produced two significant aftershocks. One, like almost directly afterwards, which was on September 20th, that was 7.5 and lasted 13 seconds. Mm. And another on April 30th, 1986. Okay. That's so crazy to me. That one was yeah. a 7.0 and it lasted 10 seconds, but it's nuts to me that they can be like, no, that was an aftershock and not its own mm-hmm. event. Well, I know so, like yeah. sometimes the aftershocks can actually be bigger than the, mm-hmm. than the original quake. Yeah. Science is fucking cool. Okay. Yeah. It's believed that there were at least 12 other aftershocks associated with the main seismic event, but wow. those two were the ones that were like the most significant. Right. Uh, the main event released energy equal to 1,114 nuclear weapons exploding. Mm-hmm. And it was felt as far away as Los Angeles and Houston. Okay. So big. Yeah. Okay. So the earthquake hits because of the geological reasons I like just listed. The buildings in Mexico City were ravaged, buildings that were full of people. Mm-hmm. Um, a weird fact about this particular earthquake the buildings that sustained the most damage were those that were between six and 15 stories tall. Mm, There's a couple reasons for this. One, buildings of that height resonate the most with the energetic frequency band of the lake bed motions. Mm, (laughs) (laughs) That makes me nauseated. It just made my stomach turn over. Yeah. Yeah. And the prolonged shaking caused Mm -hmm. those buildings to collapse. Okay. Um, One nine story building was completely overturned and it's, it's piles were pulled entirely out of the ground. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Buildings under six stories and over 15 received significantly less damage. Part of this has to do with one, those lake bed vibes, just vibes. Right. No, no earthquakes, just vibes. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but additionally... Like, okay, so there was the lake bed vibes, but also it depended on when those buildings were built. So in 1957, Mexico got hit with the 7.6 Guerrero earthquake, and that earthquake Mm. hit Mexico City. Prior to that event, there were no building codes to provide earthquake resistance. Mm -hmm. Some regulations were put in place after Guerrero, and even more were added after another more significant quake that happened in 1976 but Mm. no one thought that mexico city would ever be struck by something approaching the 1985 quake right so the buildings built between 1957 and 1976 were built when the city was starting to build upwards Mm -hmm. right in that five to 16 story range Mm -hmm. okay buildings constructed before 1957 were the next most damaged because they had no building code regulations, but they were shorter. So it, I don't want to say like it didn't matter, but they right. were shorter. So they there wasn't there just wasn't the real estate for right. as much damage. Right. The 44 story Torre Latinoamericana survived this quake with almost no damage. 
44 mm. stories. That's that's nuts that the taller buildings do mm-hmm. that. Right? Yeah, and it's because they were built, like I said, the city had already started to build up and then they were like, right. we need to get fucking serious about this earthquake shit because they keep happening. Mm-hmm. So this 44-story Torre Latinoamericana was constructed with 200 piles extending down over 100 feet into stable earth stratum. Okay, so like so, getting past all the fucked up ground. Yeah, right? all of the all of the smush mush. They were like, mm-hmm. go past the smush mush and get get. <laughs> that's that's what they do. <laughs> that's, I do love your your resounding knowledge of scientific uh, jargon here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea of this guy being like, build this building. I'm going to need you to go past the smush mush, <laughs> send it deep in there and stabilize. I know that like the houses, the stilt houses in Portland, um, and I think even like around LA and stuff, like mm. they'll, they'll have the, the stilts like go mm. way deep into the ground because otherwise it's just going to be taken up with mudslides and stuff. Yeah. It's, this is just, Stop building on everything. Um, (laughs) Good grief. Mexico City's historic downtown suffered the most damage of all of the... So Mexico City is made up of several boroughs. Right. And the borough that contained historic downtown, that was where, like, that, that... it just got leveled. Mm-hmm. 258 buildings completely crumbled. This is just in the historic downtown. 258 buildings completely crumbled. 143 partially collapsed. And 181 were seriously damaged. Mm. So you have this massive earthquake that is like shake, 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 shake for three minutes, which set a timer for three minutes. That's- and imagine if your world was... Yeah, you know, that's terrifying. It's t- it's awful. So this insane earthquake happens, and to add insult to injury, then you have the response by the Mexican government. Mm. Okay, Mexico's president at the time was Miguel de la Madrid, and he was a member of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which is also referred to as the PRI. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a political party that was founded in 1929 and that held uninterrupted power in Mexico for 71 years. So mm. from tw- 1929 to 2000. So basically right after the Mexican revolution. Exactly. And this was a, the, the partyology has like shifted over time. And when I was trying, Mm -hmm. again, this was a whole other episode in and of itself, but I was trying to figure out, I was like, well, what do they stand for? And I was like, no, but really like, what do they stand for? (laughs) What are their, what are, you know, your main goals? And it was, it was a little difficult to find. I mean, they were kind of originally like kind of a left-wing party, I think, but then over time it sort of became unclear. So it was a political party that was started to provide space for the surviving leaders and combatants of the Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. Basically to be like, you know, you guys fought a fucking war. So let's, you know, get right. get on get on into this room and help us make decisions. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, thing about it is, is that it used a combination of corporatism, co-option, and repression to hold power. So not great. Not great. They frequently relied on electoral fraud to remain in power. I mean, sure. like in Wikipedia, when it's talking about it, it's like the 1929, 1937, 1954, 57, <laughs> 75, 86, uh, 91, like all of these elections that you were like, <laughs> all of those elections were in fucking question. Yeah. In 1990, Peruvian writer, Mario, Var- I'm sorry, Mario. Who am I? (laughs) 
what the hell? Okay, let me try that again. In 1990, Peruvian writer Mario Vargas Llosa described Mexico's PRI regime as follows, quote, I don't believe that there has been in Latin America any case of a system of dictatorship which has so efficiently recruited the intellectual milieu, bribing Mm. it with great subtlety. The perfect dictatorship is not communism, nor the USSR, nor Fidel Castro. The perfect dictatorship is Mexico because it is a camouflage dictatorship. Okay. So that's who we're dealing with, with Madrid in power. He was heavily criticized for his response to the earthquake. He ordered Mm. a news blackout. Mm, Of course. Like he was like. Priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Priorities. And the federal government's first public response was Madrid declaring a national period of mourning for three days starting on September 20th. So Mm. he didn't address the people until Mm -hmm. the next day. And then it was only to be like, we're going into a period of mourning. Thank you. Goodbye. Like that was it. Yeah. This is just his way of like not answering questions. (laughs) Yeah. No take backs. No take backs. (laughs) Um, The quake left Mexico city without electricity and the damage done to the telephone network was the greatest in communication history. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know if that remained true for always, but at least it was true up until that point. Mm. Um, He also declined early offers of international aid. Mm. Well, why? Exactly. Um, He did change his mind on that pretty quickly, but like. Mm. Just because you're embarrassed or something? Well. Like national pride or something? So I'll keep going. Uh, (laughs) Madrid and his advisors refused to deploy the national emergency plan. He he refused to deploy the military to go Mm. in and help. It is believed by some that Madrid prevented the military from going in to like to provide aid so that he could prevent the military from gathering political cachet by coordinating the relief efforts. Oh, so this guy sucks. Basically. He, uh, yeah. I mean, he's dead. He yeah. sucks. He, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if we have any, you know, Madrinistas or whatever they would be called. Partisans, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but your homeboy sucks. Um, yeah. And you know, it's just it, like, to me, that is one of the things that it is like, if you prevent your military from going in to help in the aftermath of a natural disaster, because you're scared that the people are going to look more favorably on the military than you, you are a dictator. Well, and also like you're, you're, you've got a house of cards. Yes. You know, like that's not a sign of a healthy society. Yeah. When he did deploy the military, it was only to patrol the streets to prevent looting. Ugh, okay. Yeah. Again, um, yeah. Also, and this this is this is so that was the that was the A. That was the first bullet point. The second bullet point is he deployed the military to the military to assist factory owners in retrieving their machinery instead of removing the bodies of the factory workers. So he just gets better and better. I mean, he just gets better and better. Yeah. Uh, one such factory was the Topeka Sewing Factory. It completely collapsed during the quake. And by the time rescue workers who were local citizens who'd started to remove debris and distribute emergency supplies themselves, by the time those rescue workers reached Topeka, the owners were already trying to have the building demolished without trying to rescue or recover those who were trapped inside. Wow. Yeah. Topeka employees themselves pulled about 150 bodies of their co-workers out from the rubble with just their bare hands. Jeez. A little side note, the quake, and again, 
this is the, the fourth episode in the series, <laughs> the yeah. seven episode series. The quake shed light on the fact that working conditions at the Topeka were terrible. The building itself was decrepit. The women were working extended hours with little to no compensation. And apparently this whole thing, the story coming out essentially made the labor industry in Mexico, like an embarrassment. Like mm. everybody was like, shame on you. Mm-hmm. The building ended up being completely demolished and all that remains now is a small empty lot with a statue of a woman sewing in commemoration. Mm, okay. There were a lot of spectacularly damaged buildings. It's interesting to read articles about this because it is it is like awesomely destroyed, spectacularly wow. destroyed. So <laughs> yeah, it's like almost like artfully destroyed. It was yeah, so. yeah, like yeah. catastrophic failure of these buildings, you know, from by this earthquake. Okay, so there's a lot of, like I said, spectacularly damaged buildings. I'm not going to go into all of them because it was a ton, but I'm going to mention just a few. Um, The Regis Hotel, which was this gorgeous, I think like neoclassical hotel that was that opened in 1914 completely Mm -hmm. collapsed within minutes of the quake. It was probably all like brick and marble and stuff. Mm -hmm. That also caused a gas leak, which meant that it caught on fire. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. Insult Um, to injury. Again, yeah. That, of course, made it extremely difficult to search for and rescue survivors. Right. Nothing of the hotel survived. And the location is now home to the, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to go slow to say this, is now home to the Plaza de la Solidaridad, Plaza of Solidarity. Okay. Um, my mom's going to fuss at me for how I just said <laughs> um, And that's a plaza that honors the victims and the first responders of the earthquake. Mm-hmm. The Central Communication Center, it was a reinforced steel structure with a microwave tower. The structure completely failed, mm-hmm. causing the collapse of the long-distance communication between Mexico, Mexico City and the rest of the world. So this is so like, based, this is why it was such a bad communications. Yeah, disaster. yeah, because this thing went down and it was like done. Yeah, done. So the okay, I'm gonna go slow on this one as well. The conjunto urbano nonoalco tlaltelolco. Good job. <laughs> this was a multi-use complex that had 102 buildings with seven medical facilities, 22 schools, 500 small businesses. Wow. Two of the three modules completely collapsed. Mm. People became trapped in stairwells, elevators, apartments yeah. without any means of communicating with the outside world. That's um, the stuff when you read these stories that I can't like I it just like there was one of the the, the one 911 movie that starred Nicolas Cage where he was like the the firefighter I think who gets trapped uh mm-hmm. underneath the building. No. I was like I, I started it and I was like I can't no absolutely can't. not no yeah this is Ugh. um yeah. so I'm gonna keep going. Um yeah. lines of like 50 to a hundred people again. I think it was one of those things that like when the Mexico city saw that their government was like, yeah, man, we're just going to like close up shop and like, you know, mourn by ourselves for three days. They were like, okay, Mm -hmm. well then we're going to start doing something. So they came out and lines of like 50 to a hundred people were just passing rubble. Like Mm. somebody would pick up a thing and pass it and pass it. And they were just clearing this rubble by hand and buckets as they tried to reach those who Mm -hmm. were trapped inside. The next is Televisa Studios, where Lord of this Guerrero was giving the morning news on Hoy Mismo with her co-hosts, Maria Victoria Llamas and Juan Dosal. Um, She was doing that when the quake hit. 
So mm, like they mm-hmm. were in the television studio. Yeah, just doing Yamas, thing. Mm-hmm. Yamas was actually there subbing, or I'm sorry, subbing for the actual head anchor, a man named Guillermo Ochoa. He was on leave that day. They just missed it. Yeah. The transmission ended because a 10 ton antenna bent and crushed parts of the Televisa building. So again, like stuff is just um, two Oy Mismo staff members died in the earthquake mm. producer Ernesto Villanueva and engineer David Mendoza Corsiga. There is video of Lourdes doing that and you can see like the studio lights Ugh. swinging at the top of the frame and the two other anchors are like they're, oh, they're like grabbing onto the desks. Mm-hmm. I and, am 100% <laughs> looking that up later. Yeah. And it's really actually like, it's incredible because at one point, Lord of this goes, I hate you. Because <laughs> like, it's a big shake. And she's like, yeah. okay, all right. It's shaking, but we're going to be here and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then the, the antenna fell. So she's a professional. She's a pro. Lord of this, yeah. if you're still out there, props. Yeah. Bish, like major props. The hardest hit area also had the highest concentration of hospitals. 13 hospitals of six or more floors were partially or completely destroyed. Mm. Um, One out of every four hospital beds was lost. More than 900 patients, physicians, nurses, and paramedics died in the initial shock. In the initial shock. Yeah. Jesus. This leads us to- These are the people you need to be like alive. unfortunately yeah that happened in like Hiroshima and stuff too yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. um and this leads us to the Hospital Juarez this was one of the oldest hospitals in Mexico it was originally built in a convent but it was founded in 1847 to treat wounded Mexican-American war soldiers okay the Torre de Hospitalización was built in 1970 with a main building that stood 12 stories tall. It had 536 beds, a helipad, and it was surrounded by a blood bank, teaching facilities, offices, mm-hmm. yada, yada. When the quake hit, the hospital was 80% full, and it was mm. the shift change for the doctors and nurses and residents. Mm-hmm. So it's like... So like double the number of people there basically yeah because they were they were coming and going yeah um the steel frame structure collapsed crushing and trapping people inside surviving hospital workers immediately sprung into action they were like let's go they set up aid stations they started scavenging for supplies Mm -hmm. when rescue workers got there they started digging through the rubble most bodies were identified by either personal effects or dental records Mm -hmm. yeah a high number of bodies that they found were so mangled that they were beyond identification mm-hmm. from this hospital 561 bodies were found 188 were never identified and mm-hmm. that number does not include unidentified body parts that were found mm-hmm. right <sighs> Um, This also ended up being the case all over the city. A makeshift morgue was set up inside a, I don't know if it's a baseball stadium. It was, I don't think it was a soccer stadium, but it was a stadium. Mm -hmm. I mean, baseball is huge down there. So yeah, they set it, they set up that stadium as a makeshift morgue and they were just like, let's do it. And they were trying Mm -hmm. to 
you know, like let people come through and look for their loved ones. But at a certain point they were like, we got to do something with these bodies. Yeah. In the YouTube video that I mentioned, you can see footage of people that are gathered and they have signs that are like, give us our dead. Mm. Don't burn the bodies. We want the bodies. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. God. And it's well, just I'm like, just thinking this is like, this is like a super Catholic society. And I know that like, like a proper burial is like a big deal, you know? Yeah. But also I think it's just like, we need to, know like we just right. want to know yeah like, so many if, people if, are missing right like if they're dead like okay and then we know and that's the end of the story and now we can grieve but like mm-hmm. it was hundreds and hundreds of people that just like right nobody ever saw them again so yeah you can see footage of all of this um and they're like they're begging the government and the rescue workers to release the bodies to the family but like that in and of itself is a whole fucking Mm -hmm. thing i mean Um, that'd be hard even if you didn't have like dickhead shitty pants as your president you know yeah yeah and to boot like the video is there's some graphic there are some graphic shots in the video so scotty i'll give it to you because i know Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll you'll watch it, but um, just be careful if you're like I'm gonna go look at look this right, video up, right? Right. Um, because there's there's some pretty graphic stuff in there, but it's also too. It's like nobody knows who this person is because they mm-hmm. were so like oh right. just Jesus. Okay, so let's move on to the miracle of Hospital Juarez. Okay. Okay. So all of this all of this stuff has happened. It's fucking rough. Like you know they've had this earthquake their government has added insult to injury there's no communication they're trying to you know move on and like try to clean up from this disaster and all that stuff seven days after the quake rescue workers reached what had been the hospital juarez nursery Mm. nearly all of the newborn babies in the nursery at the time survived the earth wow yeah they survived for seven days without just like on their own in their little cribs yep without nourishment water warmth human contact nothing these babies came to be known as the miracle babies or the miracle of hospital juarez yeah Um, some were pulled from the rubble like basically uninjured but others were left with lifelong disabilities um you know they were left there you know crushed under rubble and all of that stuff but like they but they're alive they're alive um i think they pulled 16 babies from the nursery and i think ultimately 14 of them ended up surviving that's 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 amazing insane to me like good grief i mean i'm not i'm not a religious person and i'm not someone who's like inclined to believe in miracles but like that comes as close as anything i've ever heard yeah yeah almost all of the babies lost their mothers in the Mm -hmm. collapse of the hospital um and they were adopted by aunts uncles grandparents um i read an article where one of the babies had gone to go live with an aunt and the aunt was like i have dedicated my life to her and i didn't Mm -hmm. get married i don't have children of my own she is my life Mm -hmm. yeah wow that's very sweet um in the years after the earthquake the miracle babies became a symbol of hope that mexico city would in fact recover from the devastation of the quake Mm -hmm. um the babies were cared for by a specific team of medical professionals throughout their lives so like they got that like they've had this team of medical professionals from the time they came out of the rubble right well it's just like up to now up to today People are just like, yeah, we're not losing them, you know? No. Money was donated by doctors and people in Mexico 
Mexico and Europe. That money was collected by the hospital and they essentially, like the hospital essentially adopted all of the 14 surviving babies and they created a trust with that money that would pay for medical and educational purposes. Wow. I know the children have lived varied lives. Uh, like one is one is a pharmacist at the hospital where she received care after her rescue. Um, others are like laborers, day laborers, some are unemployed. The hospital never released any reports on the miracle babies, but of course, journalists and reporters track them down every year. No, every year to retell their story because I saw that because I, and like, because I saw that like, this is hard on them. I'm not going to name any of them, Sure, yeah. but I'm just going to give you a couple of quotes. Uh, One said the hardest thing was seeing the videos of 1985 every September in school. When we started school, everyone knew us. They would ask us, how do you feel? Children Mm -hmm. are very cruel sometimes. Yeah. Another says it has all made me think that we live for something. I feel we have to take advantage of every minute. Wow. Yeah. Like I mentioned before, ordinary citizens organized to help with the relief efforts and provide food, clothing, and emotional support to those who had been left homeless by the quake. So remember I talked mm. about how like Mexico city already had like shanty towns and tenements, right, right. all that stuff was leveled. Sure. So yeah. Those people were like the already like basically unhoused mm-hmm. people became like really unhoused mm-hmm. and then a whole bunch of, I think I saw that 80,000 people were left homeless after the earthquake. But, Jeez like, Louise. Yeah. But I mean, if you think about it like that with a city of that size, that's almost like not as many as you might expect. You know? <sighs> what are you going to do with 80,000 homeless that's, people? Yeah. And a president who's like, shh, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, Oh, one other thing that I do want to say is that the hospital, I think it was a hospital. I think it was the hospital because, you know, these babies were all, they were all newborns in the nursery. So they're all mm-hmm. like born within days of each other. And right. they did a big thing when they all turned 15, which was essentially like a big party for the boys and, and essentially like a communal quinceanera for the girls. Oh, wow. Well. And just. Man. Okay, so we've got our ordinary citizens organizing to help out with relief efforts and provide food, clothing, emotional support to those who had been left homeless by the earthquake. After the September 20th aftershock, that was a tough thing too, is that people were trying to do these rescue missions and then that aftershock came and they were like, fuck this. Mm-hmm. Right. But they came back after, after the aftershock stopped. But after the September 20th aftershock, the Mexican government finally accepted foreign aid Mm. and machinery, medical supplies, and excavation equipment descended into the city to help. Nancy Reagan visited, as did the Israeli delegation of the Israel Defense Force, which was enthusiastically Mm. welcomed by Mexico City's Jewish community. No, I would think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. The... Sistema de alerta. No, sorry. Let me try that again. <laughs> Sistema de alerta seismica. Again, mm-hmm. sorry, mom. An early warning alert system was put in and created to send electronic messages from sensors along the coastal subduction zone in Guerrero that would that and it will. It still will. It's still in place. That will alert Mexico City of any seismic activity over 6.0 oh, so yeah. it's like hey something's coming yeah they're they're, they're not wanting to fuck around with this <laughs> no <laughs> the uh civil protection committee was created to organize drills with rescue workers police and hospital mm-hmm. staff because of the fucked up government response to the quake the exact death toll is unknown mm-hmm. 
the Mexican government was like, we think it was about 5,000. I've seen other figures that are as high as 45,000. Wow. And I mean, I think a huge, like if you didn't even find all of the dead people, mm-hmm. you there's no way you can have an well, accurate Yeah, count. I mean, that, that happens in my story too. You mm, know. God. Yeah. Uh, the quake did $5 billion worth of damage. That's a 1985, 5 mm-hmm. billion. Today it's nearly 14 billion. Wow. In 2015, there were still approx. I'm sorry, let me try that again. In 2005, there were still approximately 80 families that were awaiting relocation from the 1985 quake. Mm -hmm. Like, guys, can we get them a house? Can we we get them them something? Every September 19th, all public buildings in Mexico City conduct evacuation drills to evaluate evacuation response. Mm -hmm. On September 19th, 2017 it was the 32 year anniversary another quake hit mexico city at around 1 1 p.m about two hours after they had concluded the evacuation drills that day jesus and on september 19th of this year the michoacoan earthquake struck mexico at 105 p.m Mm -hmm, right Uh, yeah i was gonna say didn't they just have one yes i mean i'm not saying i'm just saying (laughs) yeah like like September 19th is maybe like the day to like, you know, take a holiday out of the city. If you care. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe just like go do some shopping in the outer Mexico right. city, you know, areas. Oh, fuck, I don't know. Or just like stand uh, in the doorway safe. all yeah. day or something. Just get in a doorway. <laughs> fuck. To end this on a positive <clears throat> note, because I, uh, I, I don't want to leave you with that, but to end on a positive note, there is also the mole brigade of Tlatleloco. I'm I'm butchering that so badly. Mm. Um, It is a group of youths who spontaneously volunteered on like after the 1985 earthquake and the aftermath of it, they Mm. spontaneously volunteered to risk their lives crawling into collapsed buildings to look for survivors. Wow. These kids were instrumental in saving a lot of people, including the miracle babies. Wow. And they formally banded together in February of 1986. They are now a band of highly trained specialists in times of disaster with branches all over Mexico. Oh, wow. They have scent dogs that they take <laughs> with them yeah. and they have assisted in rescues in San Salvador, Taiwan, the countries of the rim of the Indian ocean after the 2004 mm. tsunami and yeah. in Haiti after the January 10th earthquake. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay. Yeah. When you say youths, like, do you know like what that means? Are they like teenagers? Or I'm willing to bet that they are probably under 18. Mm-hmm. That or wow. that I'm sorry, that they were under 18. I mean, probably part of the reason you know it's like they were smaller, so probably like and the, and yeah, I they just could have been like just, 12 or something. I just love that they were like, "Fuck it, we're going in." Like, fucking doing this. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna get in there. I well, can get I in mean, there. You've got a president who's the literal personification of the like dog and the fire this is fine me this is fine so mm-hmm. you know like get your 12 year old kids to go like fucking take care of your country you know yeah but that's yeah. that's awesome that it's like it's it's grown into this thing yeah and that they were like you know what we're actually like just gonna keep doing this and we're gonna train people to do this and we're gonna get super trained and mm-hmm. we're gonna you know we're gonna get some dogs and we're gonna go help out a bunch of other people around the rest of the world Mm-hmm. It's pretty dope. I wish I could. I wish there was like more information on them because uh, mm-hmm. I'd want I'd want to learn even more about them. Um, and that is just the tip of the iceberg regarding the 1985 Mexico City earthquake and the miracle of Hospital 
what is. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a dark ass story, but you do have this like amazing thing that happens in the middle of it. Yeah. Tlaltelolco. Um, yeah. I can't say it. I can say it in my head. I cannot say it out loud, out loud, but that's how I am. Whenever I like see Russian names and this has happened on the show before, it's like, I can say it in my head, but then my tongue will not form the syllables. Tlaltelolco. You know? Well, it's T-L-A-T-E-L-O-L-C-O. Tlaltelolco. I think that's mm-hmm. how you say it. I should have practiced more. Um, (laughs) uh, Yes. So if you're interested in learning more about this, there is tons of information out there. Everything leading up to the earthquake in Mexico City history is fascinating. The development of Mexico City itself is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, Learning about earthquakes, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Learning is fascinating. <laughs> uh, so go and uh, go and check out some of that stuff. Because like I said, I, I was having to be very disciplined and not falling into a billion rabbit holes. Yeah, that. it was kind of the same with my story too. Yeah. All right. There we go. All right. Well, uh, so my story does not have any miracles, but let's let's do it anyway. Maybe I should have gone first or second. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly, because we're not we're not going to end on a particularly happy note with my story. But I also have a cold open. So, yes, on the night of October 8th, 1871. So basically exactly 151 years ago, as of yesterday, which I did not plan, just kind of (laughs) happened this way. Okay, uh, a fire started in or near a small barn belonging to the O'Leary family at 137 DeCoven Street in Chicago. Mm-hmm. This was just southwest of the city center. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fire first consumed a shed that was next to the barn, and then it jumped the south branch of the Chicago River, and over the next two days consumed more than 17,000 buildings <sighs> over a 3.3 square mile area in the heart of the city. It eventually jumped over the main branch of the river and began to burn its way through the near north side. So the city was put under martial law under a General Philip H. Sheridan at the request of the mayor, Roswell B. Mason, which is one of my favorite names I've ever come across. Roswell B. Mason. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Approximately 300 people were killed before the rain finally extinguished the fire on October 10th. More than 100,000 people were left homeless. This was out of a total population at the time of about 324,000. So basically like kind of a third. Say that again. How many were left homeless? 100,000 out of 324,000 were left homeless. Uh, It caused $220 million worth of damage. This is $1871. So that's (gasps) $5.4 billion in today's. What? Okay. Yeah. And then, well, thank you for the conversion. Yeah. (laughs) Luckily, Wikipedia did that for me. Oh, nice. Um, While the cause of the fire was never like exactly established, a legend quickly spread saying that a cow kicked over a lantern in the O'Leary barn. Mm. Um, so the O'Leary's, of course, denied this. They said they were in bed uh, before the fire started. There were no lit lanterns anywhere near the barn. But, of course, the cow story spread across the city. Right. And this, you know, at this time, along with virulent anti-Irish Catholic sentiment mm. um, and the fact that the O'Leary's were poor, uh, led to specifically Catherine O'Leary uh, being made the perfect scapegoat for the fire. Um, so although the O'Leary's... Why? Okay, sorry. You'll probably get to it. <laughs> I think because she had, like, the story is she had been in the barn milking the cow and then left and, like, left the lantern. That, that was the story. Okay. So they were never officially charged with starting the fire, but they and their cow weren't officially exonerated by the city council until 1997. So, of course, 
This is the Great Chicago Fire. Most people know about it. Most people have heard the cow kicking over the lantern story. Mm-hmm. But that's not what my story tonight's about. What is it? Almost forgotten to history, on the very same night, there were three more major fires burning throughout the upper Midwest. So about 100 miles northeast of Chicago, on the opposite shore of the lake, the lumber towns of Holland and Manistee, Michigan, burned in what were called the Great Michigan Fires. Uh East of Holland, on the other side of the state, so kind of over by almost Toronto, like the border to Canada, Uh the Port Huron Fire burned several cities, including uh, White Rock and Port Huron. So between the two major Michigan fires, this burned more than 1.2 million acres of Michigan wilderness. Several small towns were lost, at least 200 lives. Uh, And like I said, in Chicago, is about 300 lives. 300 people Mm -hmm. died. But the worst conflagration by far Mm -hmm. occurred 250 miles north of Chicago in northern Wisconsin. Now, before this fire was through, it burned another 1.2 million acres. It decimated the communities around Peshtigo in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. in Oconto County, Wisconsin. And it claimed more than 2 billion trees and possibly up to 2,500 lives. Um, and it's like I said, it's almost entirely forgotten to history. But this is the Great Peshtigo Fire, which is to this day the deadliest and most devastating fire in United States history. Oh, let's do it. So let's do this. Okay. So my sources are Wikipedia, as always. Always. Um, history.com, uh, an article from Wisconsin Magazine of History. Awesome. Um, this is from the summer of 1971. It's the Great Peshtigo Fire and Eyewitness Account. Also, the list of dead in Peshtigo. This is from the Peshtigo Fire. Mm. Fire Museum website, an article from agupdate.com, and then an article from wbckfm.com. So let's uh, let's get into it. So here's a quote from that uh, agupdate.com website. Okay. It says, a firestorm, a raging angry inferno so large and powerful that it creates its own weather. Not just a crown fire, but a fire tornado with temperatures of 2,000 degrees and winds of more than 100 miles per hour. Columns that are miles high. Natural force is so powerful that sand is whipped into glass by hot wind and fire. Burning boards are sucked into a vortex of fire high into the sky to be dropped on the decks of ships at sea miles away. A billion trees are destroyed. Flames vaporize humans and animals into ash blown away by the wind in seconds. No, it's not a current huge wildfire in the West. It's a vision from Wisconsin's past. Um, okay, so before I get into the fire itself, let's talk about slash and burn farming. Uh, so slash and burn agriculture, it's it's what's called shifting cultivation, which means it's like it moves around, you mm-hmm. know, it's not like working one plot of land, but it's like, you know, kind of moving from place to place. Right. It's a farming method where plants and trees in a forested woodland area are cut and then burned to create a field, which is called a swidden. So the down vegetation, i.e. the slash, is left out to dry after being cut. This is generally done just before the rainiest part of the season because of the risk of massive fires. Okay. Um, and then once the slash is sufficiently dried out, it is burnt. Um, this results in a nutrient-rich layer of ash, which then sharply increases the fertility of the soil. Mm-hmm. It also has the secondary benefit of burning out all the weed and pest plants. The swidden then will be productive for about three to five years, at which point the nutrients from the fire are largely depleted. Um, and then the weeds and pests begin to invade the land again. And so the mm-hmm. farmer will then abandon that plot, move to a new area and start the cycle again. I wonder how they discovered this. Yeah, I, this is the type of thing because this is I didn't get into it, but like this has been going on for like thousands of years. I think mm-hmm. like who made the like connection that like ash creates nutrients you know yeah like it like there's so much stuff in humanity that i'm like 
that had to have been discovered on accident, right? I, I like would somebody think was so. just like, did we see that there's like a whole bunch of crap growing in the that field? And yeah, <laughs> the, where, where the fire happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has to be that kind of thing. It's like penicillin. You know, penicillin was discovered by accident. So is that true? I just heard that on the Western, so I'm 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 assuming it's true. <laughs> okay, that's gonna be my next episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> Debunked. <laughs> Debunked. But anyway, like this sounds like a kind of crazy, irresponsible farming method, but it, it actually isn't if it's done correctly. For one mm-hmm. thing, you're actually using the natural life cycle of a forest. Yeah. Because like fire is rejuvenating. Like you need yeah. fire to keep a healthy forest. Yeah. It does cause temporary deforestation, but after about 20 years, the original vegetation in within the Sweden largely grows back. I don't think the trees necessarily grow back, but you get a lot of the bushes and plants and stuff start coming mm-hmm. back. And so it, then it can be slashed and burned again. So you're just kind of hopping from plot to plot over mm-hmm. time. It's a very sustainable practice and it can be repeated in the same general area over and over again. It's really ideal for low density populations. It's not uh, particularly scalable for like a city yeah um but if you're in like a small town say in northern wisconsin mm-hmm. uh this is this is the way to do it but you can also imagine that there are some risks involved yeah i would imagine that it's really easy to fuck up exactly as someone who my family lost our house because the forest service decided to do a quote unquote controlled burn mm. um yeah and, and and by the way i should say this story uh is going to require uh, multiple trigger warnings uh for people specifically anyone who's like lived through a fire um Mm, you might want to like you know like i said proceed with caution okay so let's get into the fire itself (laughs) um so because slash and burn farming is so effective many small-scale farmers many of whom were european immigrants leaned heavily into this technique and this meant that throughout this region fires have been burning throughout the summer and and into the fall Mm -hmm. um and also people have been doing this for so long that i think people are getting a little like cavalier about it it just so happens yeah this is i mean you don't want to fuck around with fire yeah and it turns out that this summer of 1871 had been incredibly dry Mm. so there had already been some major fires up in canada and Iowa early in the year. And as we're going to get into, there'd been other fires kind of around this area. People kind of knew that the risk was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Peshtigo itself, it was a company lumber town and a sawmill town. It was owned by a guy named William Ogden. And it was home to what was then one of the largest wood products factories in the U.S. Like almost all Midwestern towns and even cities like Chicago, it was extremely vulnerable to fire because, you know, we're talking the 1870s. So nearly every single building in town was timber framed. Um, mm-hmm. so this made them prime fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, since it was a sawmill town, the roads in and out were covered in sawdust. So just like a carpet of like flammable material throughout the town. Also, one of the major bridges leading into the town was made of wood. So that meant any fire could rush quickly into town, but then escaping would become nearly impossible, which Mm. is kind of what happened here. Mm. So here's a quote from a guy named Father Pernan, um, and we're going to get to him a little later. Uh, he was an, okay. he, he was an eyewitness um okay. he said he described the areas he said quote a country covered with dense forests in the midst of which are to be met with here and there along newly opened roads clearings of more or less extent sometimes a half league in width to afford space for an infant town or perhaps three or four acres for a farm with the exception of these isolated spots where the trees have been cut down and burned all is wild but majestic forest trees trees everywhere Nothing else but trees as far as you can travel from the bay, either towards the north or the west. So we are like 
in the fucking forest. Yeah. So like I said, the townspeople in Peshtigo, they understood this danger. And so just a few weeks earlier, they'd begun stockpiling a large supply of water. Also, like I said, other fires had been kind of burning in the area in the weeks before, like um, Father Pernan. He talks about a fire that almost got out of control. He was out hunting with a 12-year-old boy. And I'm, I'll leave all the jokes to the audience. Yeah, the look on your face is the look I had when I <laughs> read that. But he was out hunting with a 12-year-old boy. They're hunting for pheasants. And they kind of got lost and then ran into a fire. He also talks about other small but dangerous fires that had afflicted if, the okay, area. I just have to interject and say that if I was a priest out hunting with a 12-year-old boy and I ran into a fire, I would start to consider if maybe God was trying to tell me something. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to get into some uh, quotes from him that are kind of along those lines. What? Okay. But so uh, he said there were other, this is from about September 22nd on, there were other fires that had kind of afflicted the area. So people were starting to get nervous. Mm. They're becoming so worried about a major fire that they began burying their valuables in like their front yards and stuff. Because they figure if a fire comes through, then they can come back and dig it up later. Also, the company, Ogden's company, uh, the sawmill and lumber company, they worked to try and remove everything they could that was combustible. Like, I think they're trying to clean up the sawdust and stuff. And they brought in even more water and, like, set caches of water throughout the town. But there was, like, no way they could have prepared for something the size of the Peshtigo fire. Yeah. Okay. So on the day of the fires, October 8th, no one really knows what started the fire. Mm -hmm. Um, It could have been a slash and burn thing. Also, there were lots of campfires. Hunters would start campfires. There were um, Native American tribes in the area that they had fire. You know, just, you know, everyone's out there. Everybody's out there burning shit. Yeah. Burning shit. But a lot of people really think it like is likely had something to do with the slash and burn farming. But on that day, October 8th, a cold front swept in from the west, and it brought with it some really high winds, uh, some likely blowing at 110 miles per hour. So we're talking like at least tropical storm level winds. Yeah. So like I said, no one really knows exactly how or where the fire started, but it was somewhere in the dense forest near Peshtigo, I think kind of west of Peshtigo. Uh, Whatever the cause, it turned into a firestorm. So it contained superheated flames of at least 2,000 degrees. Um, ah. The flames got to the point where they were about 200 feet tall. So here's a quote, and I couldn't, like, the people who made the quote are someone named Guess and Lutz. So I think wrote a book about this, but I couldn't find anything about them. But they said. <laughs> just um, two dudes. Just two like, dudes. Hey, we've got an opinion. Yeah. Hot take. Yeah. Hot take. <laughs> Oh, but here's what they said. They're like, they, let me mansplain this <laughs> Yeah, it's basically what they do. But they say when a firestorm erupts in a forest, it is a blow-up, nature's nuclear explosion. Mm. So okay. So the first community hit by the firestorm was a tiny village near Peshtigo called Sugarbush. Um, I could not find the exact number of the population, mm-hmm. um, but I think it was pretty small. Well, the fire just like steamrolled the town and killed every <sighs> single resident of the town. Did and, they, like, know, the, was it what did like did they not have time to evacuate like what happened yeah it was well because 110 miles per hour winds oh, like yeah. when i was uh with the fire in los alamos mm-hmm. like i remember you know the fire was miles away from my parents house and then i was out of town the winds kicked up and my mom called me and she was like what do you want us to grab we have 12 minutes so it, it was moving like 50 miles an hour through the woods through the trees <sighs> and that was and i don't think that qualified as a firestorm i think it was a crown fire so firestorm is going to be even faster yeah oh my god so yeah i think 
and and of course this is like before phones before the internet right 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 <laughs> so like no one can like alert anybody it's just all like oh, holy fuck there's a fire and then they're dead Ugh. like yeah like i said the flames were about 200 feet tall at this point and mm-hmm. it started moving on to hit peshtigo so in peshtigo 200 people died in a single tavern i'm going to talk about those people here in a moment okay Many more fled to a nearby river where several people died either from hypothermia or from drowning. We'll talk about them as well. Um, three, this this is this is grim. So three people tried to hide in a metal water tank. No. And they ended up boiling to death. Aww. So an estimated 800 people were killed in Peshtigo alone. Ugh. And the population was, I think, like 1,700 or something. Um, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's talk about Father Pernan. So he was the parish this priest. This asshole. Okay. This asshole. <laughs> uh, he was the parish priest for Pestigo and a nearby town called Marinette. Both of his churches burned to the ground. And he's kind of considered to be the most vivid eyewitness account. And so I've got a lot of quotes from him. I really, like, there's a certain point I just had to, like, stop with him because it's like, there's so much. Right. Uh, but it, I get you through, like, the brunt of it. Okay. So this is from that Wisconsin Magazine of History from 1971. They said, published in 1874, uh, so three years later, ostensibly to raise funds for a new church in Marinette, Father Pernan's account may have also been an attempt to exercise the memories of that October night, during which he suffered fearfully while behaving heroically. So Pernan was in Pestico the day of the fire. He he would like go back and forth between there and Marinette. Okay. He was actually supposed to leave to go back to Marinette, which I think also got hit by the fire, but not as badly. So he said, quote, my departure was strongly opposed by several of my parishioners. There seemed to be a vague fear of some impending, though unknown evil haunting the minds of many, nor was I myself free from this unusual feeling. So instead of going to Marinette, he decided to stay behind in Pestigo. He said, Mm. God willed that I should be at the post of danger. Thus, I found myself at Pestigo Sunday evening, October 8th, where according to all previous calculations, I should not have been. So he left the church at around 7 p.m. to check on his neighbors, including a local widow named Mrs. Dress. The two of them kind of went out for a walk on her land. I think they were like smelling the smoke and stuff. So they knew yeah. there was a fire out there, but I don't think they had any idea how bad it was. And he said, quote, the wind was beginning to rise, blowing in short, fitful gusts as if to try its strength and then quickly subsiding. My companion was as troubled as myself and kept pressuring her children to take some precautionary measures, but they refused, laughing lightly at her fears um so okay dicks yeah well we get we get more of that um yeah i'm sure so as the wind rose he and mrs dress they came across some burning stumps and fallen trees nearby that were starting to flare up and this is part of why people think well this might have been at least exacerbated by the slash and burn because it sounds like it might have been a slash and burn plot Mm. um and he said he and mrs dress extinguished them i'm not sure how i think they're just kind of smoldering and flaring up okay at this point he's like getting pretty nervous so he goes back to the rectory then he's looking out the window and he can see in the distance off to the west a dense cloud of smoke and the glow of a fire and this like gave me goosebumps when i read this because i remember this from the los alamos fire Mm. Um, just that eerie nighttime glow of the oh yeah yeah so at this point he's like i'm not gonna sit around and wait so he starts preparing. The first thing he did is he let his horse go, thinking the animal would have a better chance of surviving if he wasn't tied up in the stable. Unfortunately, did not survive. They found the horse later. Um, uh, he also started digging a trench in his garden as he dug. I think he was at first thinking he was going to dig a trench like around his house, like a fire break. But I think he kind of figured out, he's like, this fi- like there's no fire break. 
for this. Yeah. So because he's looking off and he sees this red glow is just getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And he can actually hear the fire. He hears this like like roar. No, thank you. Ooh. So instead, he's like, I'm going to start burying my stuff. So he starts throwing his valuables in there. This is his quote. He says, between each stroke of my pickaxe, I heard plainly in the midst of the unnatural calm and silence reigning around the strange and terrible noise already described, the muttered thunder of which became more distinct as it drew each moment nearer. The sound resembled the confused noise of a number of cars and locomotives approaching a railroad station or the rumbling of thunder with the difference that it never ceased, but deepened in intensity each moment more and more yeah so he's digging this trench he's starting to think about burying his shit and right now at the same time his neighbors are next door and they're literally just sitting on the porch having tea with friends and they're laughing at him um when you point to the blazing blood red skyline guys go hey and also do you smell that and also do you hear that right three of your five senses (laughs) right and also have you read the book of revelation because (laughs) (laughs) hey martha go grab your book of revelations bitch (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah they're laughing at him but then you know the party kind of disperses he's still out there digging and the hostess kind of i can't i wrote i forgot to write down her name i think it was like mrs dyer or something um Mm. but she like she comes over she starts talking to him she's like do you really think there's danger and he's like yeah again points to the blood red skyline the apocalypse moving their way um but he says he's like he's like i don't know if it's gonna hit the town but i feel like i should prepare and so she's like but if a fire breaks out father what are we to do and he says in that case madam seek the river at once so according to him once the fire started to move into town she took his advice she got her family they went to the river and apparently all of them survived he's laughing now um he talks about now this is uh remember the people who died in the tavern 200 of them yeah so the tavern's like right across the street from the church and as he's digging in his garden he sees all the people over there just getting fucking shit faced so he says whilst working in my garden i saw several of them hanging about the veranda of the tavern or lounging in the yard their intoxicated condition was plainly revealed by the manner in which they quarreled wrestled rolled on the ground filling the air all the while with wild shouts and horrid blasphemies <laughs> so hey, let's, I think he's he's being a little judgy at this point. let's pump the brakes on the <laughs> horrid blasphemies <laughs> That definitely, I was reading that and I was like, that's some, that's some H.P. Lovecraft shit right there. Like (laughs) H.P. Lovecraft overwriting right there. (laughs) So at this point he's like, fuck it. I'm going to start getting ready to head for the river. He starts burying his stuff. And then he goes into the church and he gets like the tabernacle and like other things from the church. And he throws them in a wagon that he's going to like drag to the river. Okay. Meanwhile, the fire's getting closer and he goes back outside and the tavern goers are suddenly real quiet watching the fire approaching. And then they all just go into the building and bar the door into the wooden tavern. Oh, guys. Oh, guys. they were so drunk. They were, they so, were drunk. so drunk. Yeah. Ooh. So as he was getting all the shit out of the church, he says, quote, a strange and startling phenomenon met my view. It was that of a cloud of sparks that blazed up here and there with sharp detonating sound like that of powder exploding and flew from room to room. I understood then that the air was saturated with some special gas, and I could not help thinking if this gas lighted up from mere contact with a breath of hot wind, what would it be when fire would come in actual contact with it? So he's like, fuck this. I'm getting out. Yeah. As he's leaving, he's, he's he's pulling the wagon. He says the wind rose into a hurricane, 
quote, and quick as lightning opened the way for my egress from the yard by sweeping planks, gate, and fencing away into space. The road is open, I thought. We have only to start. So. <laughs> um, what so a fucking is- nerd. He's <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a lot of like, I mean, not to not to make fun of this guy who fucking managed to survive a massive fucking inferno. But like, (laughs) as I was reading his thing, some of it, I was like, okay, like, it's just sort of those trying to be Nathaniel Hawthorne or something. Right. Like, Like, did you were you like, and now or were you just like, look at the fuck out of here? Like, there's a lot of like, God (laughs) chose me to be in the place of the, you know, it's like, dude. Just, just get out of town. Like, yeah, you just don't need, go. You don't need quit proselytizing. <laughs> right, and get the fuck out of Dodge. Right, there's a fucking fire behind you. <laughs> yeah, I had the exact same thought as I was reading his stuff. There was a lot of like, I, I left a few of the eye rolly things in because I, I found them amusing. But there was a lot of eye rolly stuff that I was like, I don't, I don't, we don't need that. Fantastic. Um, but anyway, so as he made his way through town, uh, he talks about how difficult it was to breathe he was like he was just like the air is being choked full of smoke and the wind keeps trying to pull the cart out of his grasp and a lot of other people are like now moving towards the river but they had, a lot of people kind of waited too long and so they're like coughing and hacking and they're collapsing and a lot of them just died right there in the road oh god and he says quote how i arrived at it is even to this day a mystery to myself so as he made his way down to the river, quote, a thousand discordant deafening noises rose on the air together. The neighing of horses, falling of chimneys, crashing of uprooted trees, roaring and whistling of the wind, crackling of fires that ran with lightning-like rapidity from house to house. All sounds were there, save that of the human voice. People seemed stricken dumb by terror. They jostled each other without exchanging look, word, or counsel. Uh, I've got some fucked up typos here. Um, <laughs> the silence of the tomb reigned among the living nature alone lifted up its voice and spoke mm. um so again i'm like lovecraft mm-hmm. um so eventually he makes it down to the river and once he gets to the river he sees the fire is like blowing cinders into the water Ugh. so he's like well i can't just like stand here you know yeah. so he's looking for a place to cross but the bridge is already on fire people around him are panicking some people are trying to run back into town like just it's just like chickens with their heads cut off right chaos this is chaos. So he tries. He tried to make it down to a spot in the river that he knew was shallower, but the fire blocked his way. I think it was like between the sawmill and the bridge, and both were in flames. And it was just like, it's like a wall of fire. I can't get there. So he ended up having to go to a different spot that was much deeper. Um, and so, quote, he says, after placing a certain distance between myself and the bridge, the fall of which I momentarily expected, I pushed my wagon containing the tabernacle as far into the water as possible. It was all that I could do. Henceforth, I had to look to the saving of my life. And I think, yeah, that wagon with the tabernacle is just like down the river. Yeah. Now, people are gathering on the bank all around him. And but they're just like standing there, just like dumb with fear, Ugh. like frozen. And again, we've talked about this. It's like we could be judgy, but it's like who knows how you're going to react? In this no, kind of yeah, you know? and and all of that is you know fight or flight, right? Right. That like, and it's one of those things that like I know everybody wants to be like stupid, but y- you you really don't know how you're going to yeah. react. Well, cause, yeah, because it's fight, fight or freeze. You know, yeah. a lot of people are 
freezing. Yeah. I think clearly Pernan had a good flight instinct. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's the thing, the right? Out. In a case like this, like you hope you're surrounded by somebody who's a, 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 a cool headed flighter. Right. And I think, you know, he's respected in town. He's a priest. So he kind of starts taking on this little bit of a leadership role. Yeah. So people are just standing around like frozen. He basically starts shoving them into the river. Just like get in the fucking water. <laughs> yes. Go. Um, and they start trying to cross, but it gets so deep that it comes up to their necks. Mm. Um, and so rather than just keep trying to cross because they see the fire is literally shooting over the river and it's starting to burn the other side. So they're like, we're just going to stay right here. So they're literally yeah. just in the river up to their necks, just standing there. And I think and I'm there. sorry. This, ha- this is happening in October. Yeah. So a lot of people are like, I think they're in the river. He said like three or four hours. Um, wow. People are starting to get hypo. It sounds like he was like, I was doing all right. But like other people are getting hypothermia. There's mm-hmm. also still cinders coming down into the water all around them. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of people th- were trying to throw their like suitcases into the wall, like to get them to like go across the river. And I guess a lot of them came open. So there's blankets and clothes and stuff floating around. So he grabs a quilt okay. and he holds it over his head and he's able to hold it over the heads of like the people near him. And they just stand there for like three hours. One of the saddest things, he says he saw a woman clutching her baby and the current just took the baby away. <gasps> and she tried to go after the baby and like they both died. Oh. Um, yeah. So they, like I said, they stayed in the river for three or four hours. Many people drowned. A lot of people succumbed to hypothermia. <sighs> but finally, I think the fire died down enough. They're able to leave the water. At, and I think they just went back up to the side they came in. I think that was already kind of burned out. Oh, wow. So they just went back up where they came. And at this point, the fire had jumped the river and it's still going. So that's wow. Father Burnham's story. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he, there's a lot more to his story. But it, like I said, at a certain point, I was like, okay, he survived the river. We need to move. On. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. so, like you said, it'll be like five hours long yeah. just of him, you know. But so, what happened to the fire after? So it jumps this river and it says after burning Pestigo, it continued up the coast of Lake Michigan's Green Bay, halfway to the sound of Escanaba, Michigan. So this is about 60 miles away. I think Escanaba is 60 miles away from Pestigo, so it made it about 30 miles. It was so large, it also managed to jump across the bay. Ooh. Um not the like wide part of the bay, but there's right, this right, like right. peninsula still... that kind of sticks up. Yeah. Um and it jumps over the bay onto this peninsula, which is called the Door Peninsula. And it burns up from south of New Franken, Wisconsin, to the shipping canal at Sturgeon Bay. That's about 40 miles. Before the fire was done, Peshtigo was just utterly destroyed, <sighs> um, along with 16 other communities. Now, the dollar cost was far less than the Chicago fire. So about $5 million worth of damage, or by today's standards, $113 million okay. versus five some billion in Chicago. Right. But of course the human cost was much higher. Yeah. Like I think it was like five times higher. Like in your story, they don't have an accurate death count. Um mm-hmm. all of the town records were destroyed in the fire. So people weren't even sure exactly who was there. The lower end of estimates has about twelve hundred people dying, but people think that's like that's way too conservative. On the upper range, which is where it seems like most people think is probably more accurate, it's mm-hmm. about twenty four hundred to twenty five hundred people died. Wow. In 1870, the town of Peshtigo, I think the cen- the census showed that in 1870, the town of Peshtigo had 1,749 residents. Um, but they actually think it was probably a lot higher because there was like a lot of laborers had come in. Mm. They were working on a railroad nearby. They're also just like general tra- travelers, salesmen, other visitors. So people, people just don't know who was there. Yeah. But they think there was a, a report that was 
given to the Wisconsin legislature in 1873. And they actually, they were able to give the names of 1,182 people who were dead or missing residents. So this is where I think that 1,200 number comes from. Okay. Um, but it's not accounting for the migrant workers, the drifters, the part-time loggers, all the other people coming. Through. Right. Of the town of 1,749 people, less than 1,000 survived. More than 350 burnt bodies were buried in a mass grave for two reasons. One, they're unidentifiable. Also, everyone who would have been able to identify them had died. Yeah. Wow. So the Pestigo Fire Cemetery is there to this day. It's been entered into the National Register of Historic Places. Mm. So even though the fire was the worst fire in American history, it was even at the time basically forgotten. Because the same day, (laughs) the Great Chicago Fire took out one of the biggest American cities. So all of the news is about the Chicago Fire. Right. So there was like the fire, the Peshtigo Fire was just like a little sidebar in the newspaper. Right. And then the Michigan fires were even like more. They're in like the C section or something. Wow. But the town of Peshtigo did over time rebuild. Uh, It's there now. It has a population today of about 3,500. Okay. Um, and the Peshtigo Fire Museum and the Peshtigo Fire Cemetery uh, remain there in town. So let's talk about possible causes. Okay. And this is this is why I well we'll get into it, but this is one of the things I've been fascinated with this story for a long time because okay. one of the theories they're like, why were all these fires in the same region? Yeah. On the same night. Yeah. Like, what the fuck happened? So one of the theories was that it could have been a meteor shower. Or a comet fragment. Okay. Um, so here's from that w- WBCK article. It says, quote, the widespread destructive and simultaneous fires were unprecedented in the United States, and nothing like it has happened since. Along with this coincidence and unusual phenomena that several eyewitnesses reported, some concluded that a force beyond the Earth must have been responsible for the event. So the theory was first proposed by, sounds like an awesome dude, a guy named Ignatius L. Donnelly. He proposed the theory in 1882. He was a radical Republican. He was a U.S. congressman and lieutenant governor from Minnesota and a, quote, fringe scientist. (laughs) (laughs) So even though he was like a successful politician, he was mostly known for all his theories about Atlantis and what was called catastrophism, which is the idea that an ancient impact could have affected or destroyed lost civilizations. So, of course, fires happen in, you know, Chicago, and he's like, fucking impact fucking meteors so yeah so he was uh he's also known as one of the people who participated in the whole shakespeare authorship controversy um he made some wild claims that shakespeare's plays were actually written by francis bacon so okay. someday we should do the, that whole thing because uh, there's some wild fucking theories but um there are so in 1882 he proposed the theory that 1871 fires were possibly the result of the earth passing through a meteor shower and okay. then in 1985 some dude named mel waskin published a book that kind of expanded on the theory i didn't look up anything about mel waskin so he's just a dude he's probably still out there today maybe he's listening what's up mel <laughs> <laughs> and then you want to come on you yeah. know let us know send we'll, us we'll, an email we'll at fucking talk thing. it through <laughs> yeah maybe i'll check it in the next five years <laughs> so in 2004 so that's one theory so we okay. went through a meteor shower in 2004 an engineer and physicist named robert wood proposed a similar theory that they could have started when fragments of biela's comet broke up as the earth was passing through its tail and he basically thought that like the fires could have been caused by the ignition of methane gas that's commonly found in comets. 
Okay. And, you know, remember what's his butt? Um, Father Pernan talking about the strange gas that was just like igniting. Mm-hmm. So evidence for these theories include the eyewitnesses across the region claim to have been seen spontaneous ignitions with no obvious source. So this is kind of like Father Pernan and the widow just walking and they're like, that stump is on fire. Right. You know? also and the widow la- walking right. in the woods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love how Sorry. suspicious we are, Father Pernan. <laughs> so also there was people talked about there was a lack of smoke. And then people, of course, saw, quote, balls of fire falling out of the sky. So mm. that seems okay. interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's 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 do some debunction junction here. So, OK, great. Um, the balls of fire falling out of the sky, probably cinders. Right. You know, and I remember yeah. this again from the fire in Los Alamos. I remember seeing you would see stuff shoot up and kind of come down. Right. right? Meteors have never been known to cause like we get hit by meteors all the time. Right. I, I thought they were always like, you know, they're hunks of like rock and stuff, not like fireballs. Well, right. And well, they're fireballs when they enter the atmosphere because right. of the friction. But by the time they get, you know, once the velocity slows, if they're big enough to not just burn up in the atmosphere, by the time they hit the ground, they've cooled off. Yeah. Like, like they may be warm, you know, but it's not going to start a fire. But they're not on fire. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. So like any meteor large enough to actually cause the kind of destruction that we're talking about would have left evidence like a crater or something. Yeah. Or there's the Tunguska event in Siberia in 1908, um, okay. which is in the, the vast forests of Siberia. Like, that's a crazy story that I should do some point. But basically, like, they were just, someone was wandering out in this part of Siberia, and they found just an area of, like, flattened trees. And this is, like, how remote it was. Like, there was a meteor strike, and, and like, no one even knew about it. Um, but they think... What they think is that a meteor came down and exploded before, right before it hit the ground, flattened the trees, but didn't leave a crater. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. But you would have thought, like, you know, it w- they would have found something like this around mm. Peshtigo. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that. So it's like, it, it's not a meteor. Like, okay. Um, as much as I wanted it to be a meteor, it's not a meteor. Not a meteor. Debunked. It, now, the methane gas theory is a little bit more possible, apparently. Uh, mm-hmm. from the from the comet but the fact is if a fragment of a comet were to strike the earth its most likely outcome would be it would disintegrate in the upper atmosphere mm-hmm. um or if it did explode um it would happen well before it hit the ground so it's just okay it's not impossible but it's pretty fucking unlikely yeah what's more possible <laughs> you know this is one of those like um Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar situation. Mm, mm-hmm. Like when you're in a fucking extremely dry, massive forest with a bunch of fucking campfires and shit. Mm. Like that's probably your explanation. Yeah. <laughs> so they think, you know, it. no one knows exactly what caused it, but it could have been these slash and burn operations. Could have been campfires left by hunters, like I said, mm-hmm. left by loggers. It could have been someone tossed a cigarette you know dumped out a pipe you know whatever yeah all of this is far more likely yeah the occam's razor of this is yeah exactly so like even father pernan in his account he's talking about like in the days before or the weeks even before he talks about traveling through the area and seeing little quote little fires gleaming here and there along the route sometimes on one side sometimes on the other so you know Mm -hmm. one plus one kind of equals two i think yeah 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 and then of course like extremely dry conditions high winds this western coal front it all just like adds up so there you go. That is the story of the Great Peshtigo Fire of 1871. Wow. Yeah. That's insane that it was so like massive, but 
Chicago got all the yeah Chicago got all the notice you know and in a way you know it makes sense because it's the city it's what I, like no one's thinking about northern Wisconsin but the Pashtigo fire was so massive you think yeah. it would have gotten Registered some attention somewhere yeah right <sighs> you know, like it was like something like five times the size of Chicago so wow yeah that's nutty good disaster story yeah <laughs> like i said unfortunately no miracle at the end of mine i know uh, we probably mm-hmm. should have ended with yours but oh well <laughs> oh well the new interview with a vampire series has started um i have not watched it yet are you watching it i watched the first two episodes on my free amc okay. uh subscription i've been hearing like decent things about it yeah, I definitely was like, oh, okay, like I'm, in, I'm, I'm enjoying this. So that's happening. Hold on. Oh, this is what it is. End of the year, beginning of 2023 is about to get lit with TV because Yellow Jackets mm, is slated to start somewhere in there, as right. is the fourth season of You. Um, mm. So I'm su- I cannot wait for mm. cozy season TV. Mm. Um, this episode is coming out this week, right? Yeah. Okay. Then I'm going to tell any Albuquerque folks to head over to dukecityrep.com and come see our show that we mm-hmm. are opening this week called Opinionated Slut. Um, it's super cool. You can see me perform October 13th, 20th, and 29th. And then you can see the rest of the performers on the other dates. There's a full schedule at our website. But if yeah. you're like, oh, hey, I want to see Amelia do a show because I've been listening to her voice, you know, in Those the dark. The days. <laughs> when you do have. By myself. Uh, the last weekend is a streaming weekend, right? So And our- the last weekend is streaming. So far away friends can tune in. Mm-hmm. Um, again, all of that information is at DukeCityRep.com. Uh, would love to see, I'd love to see some weirdos there. Uh, mm-hmm. Weirdest thing, weirdos, not like weirdos. Right, um, not, not creepy. Yeah, weirdos. I think that's all, that's all my news. Do you have anything that we need to update people? No, I was just going to say on the whole TV front, um, I did have a question. So one thing I've been hearing about the new interview with the vampire there's a guy uh in uh, the daily beast i think wrote an, uh a review and he was like super excited because like they've made it like real like legitimately gay right like legitimately sorry gay. we're talking about interview with a vampire interview with the vampire yeah, yeah sorry internet cut out on my end so i was just like, okay well there goes that. that's happening um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. yes interview with a vampire is it's pretty gay that i'm good for them yeah it's pretty gay yeah um who is it is it terrence mann is that the guy who's playing uh, the reporter no well, right? maybe. what is his name hold on i'm gonna look him up yeah look him up because i read that and i'm forgetting uh i'm gonna look him up and i'm also gonna see about the population of mexico city oh yeah, 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 yeah. um no stop it <laughs> thank you okay let me see no i'm good grief i was so far off it's eric gozian <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I, I wanted to say like, um, what's his do they, name? Do they kind of look alike? Is that what the thing is? <laughs> I was going to say, what's his name? Like, was it, was it Patrick Byrne? The guy who's in Usual Suspects, the Irish guy. He's got a little bit of an Irish, but goes in quality. That's who I was thinking, but no. Okay. This is, okay. I don't know. I don't, 
I don't know how that happened. Eric Bogosian, he plays the reporter. Yeah, yeah. I would say it's at least definitely worth checking out. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch that, but I've been, uh, uh, we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about it because I know you're not watching it, but I've been obsessing over, like with the rest of the country, I'm obsessing over House of the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. I'm out on that one. Maybe in like Mm -hmm. seven years, I'll watch it. Yeah, that's definitely one that like, if you're not like a hardcore fan, like just wait and binge the whole thing. I I don't don't think it's going to be seven seasons. Like knowing the story, it's based on i'm like they'll be good to get three or four seasons out of it so yeah it'll knows? be manageable i think but who knows uh yellow jackets can't wait cannot yellow wait jackets we've got some very cool people joining the cast we're not going to get into it because we're not going to get into spoilers mm-hmm. um if you haven't if you haven't watched yellow jackets yet i mean i honestly just don't know what's wrong with you with this yeah i don't i don't even want to know you you know what i'm saying <laughs> So, uh, go get your, get your free showtime trial, binge it in this Mm. next week and get caught up. Um, yeah, I'm definitely binging, uh, the first season again before the new. Yeah. Cause we need to, we need to talk about it with people. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With that, that. we're going to leave you here. Uh, you all, thank you so much for tuning, for tuning in. Like this is a radio station. Um, (laughs) thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we think you guys are awesome. What is it? Subscribe, rate, review, share with your friends, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>